I invite you to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Although I think I could just listen to that prayer again. Uh, I, I really could. Amen. Revelation chapter 2. If you're looking for it, it's the last book in the Bible. Uh, we're going to depart from 1 Corinthians for the next nine weeks or so to look at the book of Revelation. Uh, we're not going to be looking at the whole book. We're just going to be looking at the first three chapters and the last three chapters of the book of Revelation, uh, largely because I don't understand the middle of it, all right? Uh, I, I say that only in, in half, half jest. Revelation is a pretty confusing book, um, largely because all the imagery that's used there, all the symbolism that's there. Uh, John Calvin famously preached through 65 books of the Bible. He only left out one, Revelation. Uh, but growing up in the church, at least for me as a child, Revelation was the book we kept going to over and over. Uh, I can remember going to entire youth conferences about the book of Revelation, uh, long debates about whether the visa uh, credit card was really the number 666. Um, I, I'm not making this up. I remember us wondering if uh, Mikhail Gorbachev was Satan or if it was Pee Wee Herman. Uh, and we just, we debated who was the Antichrist. Thankfully, we've largely moved past that as a church. But this book is, is confusing. It's what we call apocalyptic literature. Actually, the, the word revelation um, is the word apocalypsis. It's the Greek word for apocalypse. Uh, but we no longer call this book the apocalypse to John uh, because apocalypse means something different in our culture. I mean, if I mention apocalypse to you, instantly you're probably thinking zombie apocalypse. You're, you're thinking some kind of end time catastrophic event that brings the end of the world. But that's not what apocalypse meant to John's audience. Apocalypse really is just getting a vision and seeing things from heaven's perspective. It's heaven's perspective on things is an apocalypse. Uh, sometimes this is a vision into the future, but, but usually it's, a, it's just a vision showing what's going on here and now. So as you're just going on through life, as you're eating and you're drinking and you're driving in your cars and going to work and you're tucking kids in bed and you're doing normal life, what's really going on? When heaven looks at this, what is really going on in our normal life? And so an apocalypse is when the curtain is drawn back and we get to see things from God's perspective. And we get to see the things that we, we think are so mundane and have little weight actually have incredible weight to God. And so this apocalypse, it wakens us up to these realities that are really all around us, but our eyes are hidden to. And so that's the book of Revelation. It's it's given to the church to show us a little peek behind the curtain as to what's really going on. Now, this book is a letter. It's a letter to the church. In particular, it's a letter to seven churches. And, uh, and it was kind of this circular letter that they were to read and then to pass along to the next church. It was like, it was the first version of, you know, the emails that you get, you know, read this, forward it, and you'll be blessed. All right, that's the book of Revelation, all right? Uh, the church was to read this, and then they were to forward it to another church, and then they would be blessed. And, and it was to cycle all the way around to these churches. Um, but the entire letter 
is written to all of these churches, uh, but within the letter, there's a, there are smaller letters written to each individual church. And that's what we're going to spend our next few weeks really looking at, is these individual letters to these specific churches. And this morning, we're going to start with the letter to the church of Ephesus. All right, so let's begin reading Revelation chapter 1. We'll read in verse 9. I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a voice like a trumpet saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna Smyrna, and to Pergamum, to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs on his head were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, these seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. And I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. If you would pray with me. Our Father, we ask that you would open up your word to us. Not that we can know more things, but that way we might know you that we can hear from you, 
that our love and our passion that you have put in our hearts would be reignited towards you. I pray that you would use these words to deepen our affection and adoration of you. And I pray that my words would fall to the ground and blow away and not be remembered anymore. But Lord, may your words remain and may they change us. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. So if you wanted, you could still visit Ephesus today. Um, It sits in western Turkey. And you can see a lot of the ruins from the first century. There's still a number of large buildings um, that you can see where they stood and and a lot of the the stones and foundation. The amphitheater is still there. Um, It is an enormous amphitheater. The ruins of the Temple of Artemis is still there. Artemis was one of the wonders of the world at its time. And, uh, and if you were to just kind of go through the city, you can kind of get a feel for what first century Ephesus looked like. But one thing you will not find if you were to go to Ephesus today is a church. There is not a single active church in Ephesus or in any of the surrounding region. They're all gone. And this would have been unthinkable for John's audience here, that there could be no churches in Ephesus because Ephesus was the hub of Christianity for centuries. Other churches, Christian writers would point to Ephesus as the example of Christian faith and practice. To not have a church in Ephesus would be like not having a church in Birmingham in the the very middle of the Bible Belt. I mean, it would be unthinkable for us to go through Birmingham and try to imagine that all of the large churches that are around now were gone. They become lofts, theaters, city halls, but they are no longer places where Christians gather together for worship. Just think, could that really happen? Could that happen in Birmingham? Well, it happened in Ephesus. Once again, not a single active church is to be found there. There might be Christians there, but they're in hiding. Jesus himself, he warns them that this might happen. Verse 5, he says, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And this is a severe warning. Removing the lampstand is removing the church's presence from the city, which happened. It's closing the church doors. But but the church doors here, they're not closed because of some political pressure or some new laws that were passed to make it illegal to worship. The church doors were not closed because of persecution or some rival religion. The church doors were closed because Jesus himself closed the doors. That is sobering. Just makes you ask, why? I mean, why would Jesus close the doors of the church in Ephesus? It's got it's to be something big. I mean, it had to be something pretty severe. Maybe it was rampant sexual immorality. That's why he closed the door. Maybe there was false teachers that were coming up or or people were believing a lot of heresy. Maybe, maybe that was it. But it's not. Jesus 
closed the doors of Ephesus because they had abandoned the love they had at first. They were no longer a loving church. Just let that sit. This really isn't a complicated passage. It's not. It's a heavy one, but it's not a complicated one. It's just one that sobers us up and demands our full attention. When I read this, I'm reminded of Jesus' conversation with Peter after the resurrection. Peter, on whom he's going to build the entire church, you're the rock, I'm going to build it. And after the resurrection, he didn't tell Peter, now are you ready to serve me? Peter, now do you believe in me? Peter, are you ready to now take great risk and show extraordinary faith for me? The only question he asked Peter, the rock on whom the entire church will be built, is Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Because if you don't love me, there can be no church. Now, this would have come as a shock to the Ephesians, largely because he first praises them. I mean, they've been doing a lot of really good things. You look at verse 2, and he says, you've worked hard, you toil. These are not lazy Christians. I know people from my generation or older are always looking at the millennial Christians, thinking, oh, you're just such lazy Christians. The church is doomed. That didn't doom the church. That's, that's, that's not what's going on here. This is a church that's working hard. They have patient endurance, meaning they're not easily discouraged. But they keep moving forward no matter the obstacles, no matter what comes their way. They patiently endure it, move forward. Jesus goes on to say they cannot bear with those who are evil, but they have tested those who call themselves apostles and have found them to be false. Meaning this was a church with good doctrine. They were solid theologically. They could sniff out heresy from a mile away, and they were happy to do it. They didn't bend their theology in order to become culturally relevant. They were not swayed by Oprah, whatever she would say or the media would say on the TV. They would say, no, that's false. Scripture says this. They didn't pick up, you know, the latest Time magazine or latest book on heaven and, and were convinced by it. They were the ones who refused to go to the movie, the book Shack, you know, the Shack, because, hey, it's full of all of these errors. They knew their theology. And they discarded the stuff that didn't belong in the church, rightfully so. It says they couldn't endure this. Verse 3, Jesus tells them, I know you are enduring, though, patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. These Christians were undergoing severe persecution. They were having their possessions taken away. They were losing their homes. Some were being tortured. Some were being killed. And yet, despite all that, they kept their faith. I love that he says, I know this. Jesus knows this. He's watching, and he says, I know what you're going through. And so far, listen to how Jesus has been describing this church. He describes the church as full of Christians who are patient, hard workers. They endure evil. 
They're sound theologically, that they hold fast to what is true. They keep the faith even when it means being persecuted. I mean, he is describing the kind of church I want to go to. That model church that I think we'd all love to be a part of. And that's what makes these next words so shocking when you get to verse 4. When he says, but I have this against you. I mean, you know nothing good is going to come after that statement. Jesus, remember, once again, he's the one holding the stars, lampstands, this powerful sword out of his mouth. Sounds like thunder when he's speaking. Like every image to kind of invoke power has just been, just been displayed before us. This Jesus now turns to the church and says, I have this against you. And he says they have left the love that they had at first. I don't know if any of this sounds familiar to you. A couple of weeks ago, we pretty much went right through this when we talked about 1 Corinthians 13. I could almost get an MP3 player up here and just play the sermon from two weeks ago in which Paul was describing the very thing that the Ephesians were doing. And he says this, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have all prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith, all faith, so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. So Paul told the Corinthians that even if they were extremely gifted, had powerful proclamation, had a really good, deep theology, had strong faith, endured patiently suffering, even if at the very giving of their lives. He says, you have, did all that and you didn't have love? You're nothing. And Jesus is saying the same thing to the Ephesians. You could be doing all of this, but if you don't love, you're in danger of being nothing. Without love, there is no church. The lampstand is going to be removed. So the Ephesians had abandoned their first love. Uh, There's some debate as to um, what is this love? Is is Jesus the object of the love or is it talking about loving others? Um, I don't think you really have to make a distinction as to which love. You love Jesus, you love others. You can't love others without fully loving Jesus. And so he's talking about just love in general at the church, a love for God and that resulting in a love for others. They are no longer doing that like they used to do when they first heard the gospel and were converted. But what does it mean to abandon the love that you had at first? It's strong language to abandon or to forsake that love. I don't think... I mean, I don't think the Corinthians just, I mean, the Ephesians just woke up one morning and just thought, you know, today's a really good day to just kind of forsake our love for Jesus, you know, and it just happened overnight. That's not how we forsake the love that we had at first. We don't wake up and decide to do it, but there comes a time we might wake up and realize that somewhere along the road we had done it. And it just kind of came gradually upon us as we just kind of journeyed through life. Now, unfortunately, I think we have seen this countless times in marriages. And I'm not talking about divorce. I'm not talking about couples that get divorced. I'm talking about marriages 
They're described as strong, solid, committed. I mean, husbands, I mean, how would your wife feel? She's like, how do we describe our marriage? It's strong. It's solid. It's committed. She's like, and passionate? <laughs> and is there, is there love? Is there affection? That's what the wife wants to know. Those things should really define a marriage, but, but I've seen many marriages just move away from that, yet they're deeply committed to one another. I mean, you know, when a couple first begins dating, everything's magic. You know, there's that first date, and, uh, you know, the, the guy sees the girl kind of walking his way, and you, you can swear you hear, like, string music playing, you know, doves flying around. Uh, you know, she comes, you'll, you'll sit down at the table together and, and you begin just saying stupid things, uh, things you would never normally say, but somehow you just, they come out of your mouth. Like, do you like food? Um, <laughs> and then you're like, that's stupid. I, I mean, not that you look like you like food. Um, not that it would be wrong if you look like, you know, you're just like, shut up, <laughs> shut up. But of course she doesn't hear it. Because she's sitting down and she's just like looking across the table. She can't believe she's on a date and her, her pulse is beating so fast. She doesn't really hear a word that you're saying. And she's feeling sick, but in a good way. You know, one of those, those good nauseated feelings. And, and so that's, that's, you know, how you begin dating. And, and you can't stand being apart from the other person. And when you are apart, all you can do is talk about the other person to all of your friends and they have to act like they care, you know, because you just like, you just keep on talking about it. Then maybe someday you get married and on that wedding day, you feel like your heart is going to burst because it is so happy. And then this feeling continues for a while, but, but I've seen it happen many times. It begins to fade away. Because life happens. I mean, life kicks in. It's just normal, routine life. Paying bills, washing the dishes, doing laundry, paying a mortgage, raising kids. And then month after month and year after year, something about the nature of the relationship begins to shift and change. Not sure when it happened, but it, but it begins to change. Now, you're absolutely 100% still committed to one another. There's no doubt about that. Your marriage is rock solid. You're committed. You're going to take care of one another. You have weathered difficult storms together. You serve one another. Nobody's doubting your loyalty to each other. But the reality is you no longer turn the head of the other when you walk into the room. Your old news. When you see your wife getting out of her minivan, <laughs> wearing her mom jeans, holding all the groceries while shooing kids in the door, your heart no longer skips a beat. And when, this is a hypothetical, people. Remember, we're, we're deep in the hypothetical here. <laughs> I'm not going to look at my wife right here. <laughs> oh, women, you know, you're, you're sitting down like at the end of an evening and you're snuggled up to your husband and you're watching TV, but your pulse isn't racing. You can't even stay awake. 
You're like, what happened? What happened? And when you're apart from one another, you're, you're not thinking about the other. Which, I mean, sort of thinking about the other. You're thinking about the schedules you have to keep together. You're thinking, is, is she going to pick up the kids or am I supposed to pick up the kids? Is somebody coming over tonight? Are we going out? Is tonight a free night or is it not? Am I supposed to bring dinner? Like, you're thinking of one another's schedules and what you're supposed to be doing in relationship with the other, but you're not daydreaming about one another. And what's happened is you've become really good roommates. You're like the best roommates. You get one another. You know one another. You're deeply committed to one another. But the passion, the affection is gone. It can happen. It actually happens a lot. It happened to the Ephesians. When Paul had first come and proclaimed Jesus to them, uh, they could not get over the grace. Oh, the grace that was lavished upon them. They were dead in their sins, but now they're alive in Christ. They once were slave to sin, but now they've been set free. They've been given new life. Everything seemed new to them. They could not get over the fact that Jesus had come and lavished such love on them. And so when Paul wrote them earlier, he wrote to things about, he, he praised them for the way that they love one another, and he praised them for the way that they love Jesus. And that was just 30 years earlier. And then life happened. Now, of course, they're still committed to Jesus. I mean, there's no doubt that they are committed. They're there every Sunday, committed. They're not going to endure any of that false doctrine. They're going to serve God. They're going to go to church more than anybody else. They'll even be persecuted for Jesus. You cannot question their commitment to Jesus, but Jesus no longer turns their heads. When he walks into the room, they, they're not struck by his beauty anymore. Grace, which once tasted so sweet, now was bland. Basically, Jesus had become their roommate. And Jesus says, I will not build my church by being a roommate. Jesus will not tolerate being a roommate. He loves you too much for that. He wants you to awaken back that love that you had at first because he wants to be in a deep, passionate relationship with you. A relationship that's not like a roommate, but like a lover. You either love Jesus or there's no church. Hear me, God is not honored through your dutiful service to him. And that's what we get here. He's not honored through your dutiful service to him. He's honored when you love him, when you find your joy in him. If Lauren's gone off and she's running some errands, and while she's gone, I decide, you know, to vacuum the house. I decide maybe to, to put up the dishes. And when she comes home, she's like, wow, you didn't have to do that. And I say, you're right, I didn't, you know, I didn't have to do that. But I, I read a, a great blog on how to be a good husband, and, and it said a good husband does these things, so I decided that I'm going to do these things. Who was honored? Was my wife honored that I vacuumed and I put up the dishes? I honored myself. 
even though I was serving, but it was done out of duty. But if she had come home, she goes, wow, you didn't have to do this. I said, I know, but it was my joy because I love you. She is honored and I receive joy. She's honored when it's an act of love. Hear me, church, that is for our good. That is for our good. That is glorious news because God is saying, I cannot be honored apart from your joy. I cannot be honored apart from you loving me. So he is all about your joy. And he is all about this love relationship. And if those things start to wane and die, it's like there can't be a church. Why even have a lampstand? I'll remove it. Let me ask you, how would you describe your relationship with Jesus? Is it more like Martha or Mary? Is it like Martha, you know, dutifully serving, slightly irritated at all the other people, not doing as much? Slightly patting yourself on the back because you're doing it so much better than everybody else? Or is it like Mary who just wants to sit at the feet of Jesus in adoration? Do you have a genuine affection for Christ or are you just trying to be a good Christian? Is coming to church a duty for you or is it more like a date? This is a date. Do you delight in knowing God or are you more of the heretical police? You can just pick out an error a mile away. And when you hear the gospel, are you largely thinking, That applies to people outside. Are you thinking, this is something I still today need to hear every day? I was lost in my sins, and I would be lost in my sins if it wasn't for grace. And the gospel is something that you delight in, not just something you think is for other people. So if you find that you lack affection, that, yeah, you know, gosh, I actually... My relationship with God is more like scheduling things. If you find that's you, what do you do? Let's look at verse five. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. Remember and repent. Remember and repent. Actually, if you go through the Bible, repentance and remembrance are almost always tied together. To repent is to remember. So when you go throughout the Old Testament, when people fall into sin, God, he says, you have forgotten me. You have forgotten what I've done. And then he reminds them, Don't you remember how you were slaves in Egypt and I rescued from this? Don't you remember how I parted the Red Sea and you you walked on dry land? So to remember was how they repented. Remembrance and repentance go hand in hand. So we are to remember the love that we had at first. We're to think back and to remember how sweet grace was when we first heard it. We're to remember how hopeless we felt when we were apart from Christ. We're to remember the joy that entered our hearts the first time we heard Jesus calling us. 
remember. And then how? Jesus doesn't really prescribe how. Just remember what you used to do. Go back and do it. Do the works you were doing at first. But he doesn't give us the list there because he's not after the list. He doesn't want you to start checking off the things. But he's saying, what did you first do when you first heard my voice and grace was first came upon you? You're like, well, I couldn't get enough. I couldn't get enough of your word. I couldn't get enough praying to you. I couldn't get enough of sharing uh, you with others. It's like, exactly. At the very least, what this means to us, church, is that we need to find time in which we remember. Uh, For me, it's every morning. It's my Bible and coffee. They go together, the Bible and coffee. (laughs) And uh, early in the morning, I'll wake up and I'll have the Bible and I'll just pray, Lord, stir my affections. And I just read a little bit. And then that leads me to prayer. Because what I've realized is I, and I think a lot of the church with me, are in danger of talking about God a whole lot. But we don't talk to him. Talking to him is what stirs our affections. And that takes time. In his word, and we listen to him, and we talk with him. Another way that we can stir our affections is simply by gathering together as his people. And we stir up one another in our faith and in our love towards Christ. You know, one of the best ways to really enjoy a meal is to not eat it alone. It really is. So like, you know, you you have some dessert, some great pie, and you you taste it. It's amazing. You give somebody else, you've got to taste this. And watching the way that they taste it and they enjoy it, your next bite will be even better. Worship is like this. We come together and when we look around and we see the delight that other people have and the joy that they have in singing, it makes us adore Christ even more. So we, we're not meant to be Christians alone and just listen to a podcast, but we come together and we stir one another's affections towards Jesus. And then another way that we remember him is uh, in a very specific meal that Jesus gave us. It's one of the ways that we remember the gospel. We remember when he first came to us. We remember when he broke his body for us. We remember when Jesus went to hell for us so we would not have to. And when we remember those things, our hearts are ignited afresh with love towards him. So let us remember corporately together, church. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, He took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body. It is broken for you. Same way he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of many. Remember this church. Remember the broken body of Jesus so that he might have a relationship with you. Remember the blood that Jesus spilled out so that he might be with you and enjoy you forever and let your hearts once again be awakened with love and passion for Christ. This is how we're going to take communion this morning.